Many Christians here in the West believe Christians in persecuted areas around the world would have us pray for the end of their persecution. I mean, usually that's what we think about, isn't it? When we think about people who are going through horrible, horrible persecution, we have no idea what persecution is like until we begin to, to see what's going on in other countries. And if you're not really aware of what's happening, uh, a good thing to do is to do a search for, for um, um, what's that called, Martyrs? Voice of the Voice Martyrs. Of the martyrs. Uh, do, a, do a search for Voice of the Martyrs and read that and see the persecution. But, but we often think that they would have us pray that they would not have the persecution they're going through. But the opposite is true. You see, Christians living and dying in areas where authentic persecution is commonplace would rather that Western Christians pray for the persecuted church that they would suffer well. That they would suffer well in order to bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I, I've heard multiple reports of Christians living in areas of persecution praying for their Western brothers and sisters. That would be us. That they pray for us. And our, our, our persecuted brothers pray that their brothers and sisters in the West, amidst all of the sinful distractions of wealth and ease and perversion and gluttony the West has to offer, would learn to suffer well. That we would have the opportunity to suffer well. They pray that we, the, the sophisticated Christians of the first world country, would repent of our worldliness and live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you think about it, in the end, that's all that really matters in this life. Have I lived a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now imagine that we are correspondents. And we are sent out to a dangerous battle zone where there, there, is, there are battles going on. And, and when we get to the battlefield, we would expect to see battle-weary soldiers in combat fatigues and dirt on their faces, living in the most difficult condition, carrying their weapons at all times. But instead, when we get to the battlefield, we're surprised to find that the soldiers are dressed in civilian clothes, playing volleyball and ping pong, lying around a swimming pool, sipping cold drinks with no weapons anywhere in sight. Now, if such an army was defending our country from a hostile enemy, we'd have good reason to be alarmed, right? <laughs> we'd say, there's a problem here. Something is wrong. Something, something is amiss. And the problem is, is that the army has forgotten its mission. It thinks that its mission centers around their own comfort and having a good time. Having forgotten the mission that they were there for, it, it would easily, they would easily fall to the hostile enemy if the enemy showed up. Now, if that enemy attacked, the members of that army might try to desert, claiming, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for all of the benefits. I signed up to, to have a good time. 
I had no idea that I might get shot at sometime while I'm out here. I just wanted the education, the free education that they were going to give me. And I believe that the American church is a lot like the army that I've just described. We have promoted the Christian life for all of its benefits. Oh, if you just come to Jesus Christ, he will give you peace and happiness. He will help you to overcome all of your problems in life. He will give you a happy marriage and a wonderful family. He'll give you an abundant life. And so the recruits sign up. They're ready to sign up. They say, that's what I want. Thinking about, about uh, setting poolside and enjoying a good life with Jesus and everything's going to be wonderful and fine. And then the bullets start to ricochet and the bombs start to drop and the shrapnel is flying everywhere and people are getting hurt. In fact, there are many that are dying. And these laid-back recruits turn and run thinking, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't the kind of Christianity that I wanted. But yet the Bible is clear that the Christian life is not a playground. The, the Christian life is a battleground. God has not saved us so that we can live comfortably and happy and self-centered in suburbia. He has conscripted us into his army. We have a mission given to us by our commander-in-chief to take the message of his salvation and lordship into enemy territory to win captive from the forces of darkness. And as in any war, our mission requires combat and it requires struggles. And if we forget our mission and we get caught up with our own comfort, we will be quick to desert the cause when the enemy finally attacks. We must both focus on and fulfill the Christian mission. Well, Paul describes the Christian cause in such combat terms in our text tonight. If you have your Bibles, we are in Philippians chapter 1, and tonight we're going to look at the last few verses of, of chapter 1, beginning verse 27, when he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. There is a sense in which it would be easier to preach these verses to the church in China or the church in Iran or the church in, in Vietnam, where believers are, are threatened with daily persecution. They're quite aware of the cost of being a Christian. They're ready, if need be, to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But few of us American Christians have ever had to endure severe persecution of our faith. 
We think of Christianity as something that increases the well-being of our daily life. And we focus on the benefits that come along from being a Christian. But the danger is, in focusing on our own well-being, we forget our mission. If we forget our mission, there is no way that we will ever fulfill our mission. And that's a problem. And if we become, and at that time then, we become an easy target for the powers of darkness. So tonight, we must focus on the Christian mission, and that mission is to proclaim the faith of the gospel. Now, we've already seen in our study of Philippians that the gospel was the central focus of Paul's life. But also we see it in other areas in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 23. He talks about all things for the sake of the gospel. Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1, he uses the word gospel six times, just in Philippians chapter 1. We see it there in, in verse 5 when he talks about for your fellowship in the gospel. We see it in verse 7 when he talks about the confirmation of the gospel. We see it in verse 12 when he says, for the furtherance of the gospel. And then down in verse 16, we see it when he said, I am reproached for the defense of the gospel. And then in verse 27, we see him saying that, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we, we see it over and over again. And then, and then he alludes to other language several more times that would still convey the same idea. For example, in verse 14, he talks about that to speak the word of God. And then in, in verse 15, preaching Christ. In verse 17, proclaiming Christ. In verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. In verse 20, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted. And in verse 21, to live is Christ. So Paul's focus should be, should be the, the, Christ, the Philippians Christ, uh, our focus, and it should be our focus as well. So he charges us and them to stand firm and strive together for the faith of the gospel. That's our focus. That's what we should focus on in life. To understand this mission then, we must be clear on what Paul means by the faith of the gospel. Because there's all kind of people that would believe all different things about what the faith of the gospel is and what the gospel even is. But by faith, he means the Christian faith. We're not talking about a generic kind of faith that says, oh yeah, I have enough faith that that chair is going to hold me. Or I have faith that, that, that I'm good enough to get to heaven. Or I have faith that, that I, can, I can do the right thing so God will be happy with me. No, we're talking about the Christian faith, which points to the context of the gospel. That is, the, there are certain core doctrines which are essential to the gospel. And it is important for us to understand and know what these core doctrines are that make up the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you see, without these essential truths, the gospel is no longer the gospel. 
And so we've got all kind of religions out there that, that say they're doing the good work and, and, and they're living by the good book and they're, they're, they're praying to the big guy upstairs and, and they're good old boys and all these kind of things. But they have no idea what the core message is of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's important that we know what that is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 3 and 4, Paul states the content of the gospel. And if, if you turn there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's just back up to verse 1 and, and read down through to verse 4. Paul says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. So he says, I'm, 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 I'm declaring to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. So if you don't hold fast to the word that Paul preached, then you believe in vain if you don't really know what the gospel is. He says, verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sin, according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So the brief statement there contains a wealth of essential truth. Because you see, it tells us who Christ is. Namely, the, the Christ revealed in the scripture that's the christ we're talking about we're not talking about the jehovah witnesses jesus or or the mormons jesus or anybody else's jesus we're talking about the christ who is revealed in scripture and it is clear from over 300 prophecies concerning jesus in the old testament that he is both eternally god who alone can atone for sin and he is fully human capable of human death and thus an acceptable substitute for our sin. That is extremely important. If we do not believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, then we're believing the wrong gospel. And that, that's the problem you get into, particularly when you get to Jehovah Witnesses. They don't believe that in him, in Jesus, dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as Paul talks about it. And so it's important that, that we understand that, and we don't just say, well, it's okay, they believe in Jesus. Now, that we need to figure out what Jesus people believe in. Because people will tell you all the time, oh, I believe in Jesus. Well, what did your Jesus do for you? Is your Jesus God? Did your Jesus create the universe? Is your Jesus eternal? You see, what, you see, we need to get a foundation here before we can just accept the fact that people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe. So Paul's statement tells us that the central truth about the work of Christ, that he died for our sins as our substitute. Anyone who does denies the essential nature of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ is denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. If, some, if somebody tells you, well, Jesus, Je nobody can die for my sins. Jesus was just a man. He can't die for my sins. No, Jesus died for your sins and for my sins. Amen. And that is a foundational doctrine that we cannot get away from. 
as, as believers. But then also, and, 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 and also uh, these things, we're talking about things here, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this. These are, these are cardinal things that would separate us from other religions and whether or not we can be involved in any kind of a ministerial association with them if they deny these fundamental truths of the gospel and don't stand firmly upon what the, Jesus, what the gospel says. The word of God says about the gospel that Jesus substitutionarily died for our sins. But then also, number two, Paul's gospel also affirms the fallen condition of the human race. In other words, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We are totally depraved without God. There is absolutely no goodness in us. There is no way that we can ever be good enough for God to accept us. There is none. All of our righteousness are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. There is nothing, absolutely nothing good about us. And any group that will tell you that you can be good enough to go to heaven, you mark that off as a false religion. Because if we deny the fallen condition of the human race, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross for us? Anyone who teaches the, the basic goodness of human nature is denying the gospel because people don't need a savior if we are good. They just need a good example and they need a little bit of encouragement to just improve themselves. And if we don't need a Savior, then Jesus died for absolutely no reason. Number three, the gospel also affirmed the historical, and this is important that we get all of this in there, the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died and was buried and was dead for three days. And he came out of the grave in his body. It wasn't just a spirit that came out of the grave. It was the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and history affirms that. And there have been a lot of, a lot of people who have researched and tried to put Jesus' resurrection on trial, and they've come away saying there is absolutely no way you can deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's too much evidence. Men that have denied Jesus and then came to that conclusion. And so, so there is the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then as Paul goes on in, in that, that same chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh, in, in verse 7, um, Paul goes on in that chapter to say, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin. I thought I had that on the screen, but I don't. So that's 1 Corinthians 15, 7. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Do you understand what he says? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And you're still lost and in your, on your way to hell. And so the resurrection, pardon, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. 17. 15, 17. Okay. I, got the, I missed a number there. I do that once in a while when I put those numbers down. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. So the resurrection is proof that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And that in his death, 
Jesus triumphed over sin and death and hell. He came victoriously out of the grave. The gospel comes to us by grace through faith, apart from any human merit or work. And Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. There, there is absolutely no good in us. It is by faith that we are saved from our sins and not of our works, lest any man should boast. And, and so, in other words, the faith of the gospel involves certain core truths which must not be compromised. We cannot compromise any of those core truths and still say, I am standing for the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so since these truths are so essential, the enemy is always trying to get us to fudge on them in some way or another. But to, to fulfill the Christian mission, we must stand firmly for the faith of the gospel. But also to fulfill our mission, we need to get our focus back on the mission itself, namely to strive together for the faith of the gospel. American Christianity has become too self-focused. We, we, we've turned inward um, to, to analyze our, our feelings. What do you feel? How does that make you feel? When somebody tells you that you're, you're, you're lost and on your way, does that make you feel good about yourself? Or, you know, we, we, try to, we, we try to feel our way through things. Uh, we try to recover from childhood abuses and, and codependency, to fixate on having more, more enriching marriages, to raise children with healthy self-esteem, and, and that they'll be able to go out there and conquer the world. In other words, we're caught up with self-fulfillment and feeling good instead of with the mission our God has given us, and that is to take the gospel to every people group in this world. Now, please understand, I am not denying the need to help hurting people deal with problems or to help get fractured families back together. I'm not denying that at all. Wounded people need some healing before they can go out to the front line. And that's the key. You get them healthy and you send them back out in the battle. We're not like, the, like, like some of our military where we bring them in, we get them healthy and we send them home. No, you go back out and fight again. <laughs> you get, we just heal, we're just getting you patched up here so you can get back out there and and, and fight in the battle. And that's what the, the Christian life is all about, too. And, and, and we coddle people so much and try to just go, you know, try to make them feel good about themselves and all that. Sometimes we just need to grow up in the faith. Amen. Sometimes we just need to say, it, it's time to get serious about your walk with Jesus Christ. Amen. Sometimes we just got to get to that point. And sometimes that's harsh, I understand that. But if all we're doing is focusing upon ourselves, we're not, we're not helping the cause of Christ at all. And that's why we're here. But, but it seems to me we've shifted our focus into ourselves to such a degree 
that instead of viewing ourselves as God's army, the American church has come to see itself as a bunch of self-help movement people. We just, we're just a self-help help movement people. And again, don't get me wrong. I think we need to help people. But we need to help them for a purpose, and that is to get them out to do the task that we've been called to do. And so we need, to, we need to keep the goal in view that hurting people need healing so that they can be deployed into the battle for reaching lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thus, in order to fulfill our mission, first we must focus on that mission. And the church is here to proclaim the faith of the gospel. If we're going to proclaim the faith of the gospel, then secondly, we fulfill the Christian mission by walking consistently, working cooperatively, and warring confidentially. Now we're going to break those three, those three things down, so you'll get them here in just a minute. I know I'm bouncing off of it real quick on you there. So we fulfill the Christian min, min, uh, mission, number one, by walking consist, uh, consistently as citizens of another country. Paul tells us here in, in our, our, our text in Philippians, there in, in, in verse 27, the first part of it, he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Now, the Greek word there, translated conduct, is literally live as citizens. That is the literal translation of the Greek there. It was a word that meant a lot to the Philippians. And so when you understand the background of the, the people of Philippi, you begin to understand why Paul used that particular Greek word when he spoke to them to live as citizen. It, it was a word that meant a lot. Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony. And the people there took pride in their Roman citizenship. They lived in accordance with Rome customs. You remember when Paul was there at the little Philippi? And he was taken, and he was beaten, and he was thrown into jail. And then the next morning they came, and they said, we're going to let you go. And he said, no, I'm a Roman citizen. And you beat me without a trial. And you're not going to just rush me out of here in the middle of the night. And as a result of that, the persecution of the church of Philippi was like nothing. Because they were afraid. Because they had beaten a Roman without cause. And so it's very important, this area of live as a citizen. And, and so they lived in accordance with Roman customs. And even though they, they were about 800 miles away from Rome, they were not under any regional authority, but answered directly to Rome, and they were governed by Roman law. They were a Roman outpost, if you will. And so these colonists lived differently than the barbarians that surrounded them because they were citizens of a different country. Paul says that Christians, no matter where we live geographically, must view ourselves as citizens of another country, namely of heaven. And thus we should live differently than those around us who are citizens of this earth. Our lives must be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And so we, we seek to please our, our, our heavenly emperor and to live by his law as revealed in his word. We seek to conform our character to Jesus Christ. Though we are also citizens of this world as the Philippian Christians were, we should be distinct because our primary citizenship is in heaven. Now, if you've ever visited or lived in a foreign country, you can, you can identify with what Paul is saying here. Because you see, when, you, when you're in a foreign country, you may have to eat some things that are unique to that country, that, that, that kind of food that we never eat here in, in America. And you, you may observe some of their custom so as not to needlessly offend them. And that's, that's particularly hard sometimes when there's certain things that are placed in front of you to eat or certain ways that, that they respond to things. You don't want to offend them. So unless your purpose is to be a missionary who completely blends in with their customs and ways, you probably will stand out as, as distinct. You're, you're simply different than they are. And so you're going to stand out anyways. Now, as Christians, we want to blend in with the world in matters that do not violate any biblical principles. Now, that's important. That's an important phrase here. We want to, we want to blend in with the world in matters that do not violate any biblical principles for the sake of not offending people and of opening the door for the gospel. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9. But even so, our heavenly citizenship should mark us as distinct. So we live for a different purpose. And instead of living for the things of this world, we live for the kingdom of God. And so we should be marked by different morals. We should, be, we should display different character qualities namely the fruit of the Spirit, instead of living for self, as the world does. We live for Jesus Christ. Amen. So as Paul puts it elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, representing his heavenly kingdom here on earth. That's what we're here for. Now, it's a sad thing when the church blends in with the world in matters where we should be distinct and is distinct in matters where we should blend in. And there's a difference there. We, when we blend in with the world in matters that we should look distinct, and then we look distinct in matters where we should blend in, it's a problem. Now, polls show that there is no difference between the evangelical population and the rest of the country in the television shows that we watch, or in the amount of time that we spend watching them. That's terrible. The amount of time that our TV is on in 24 hours. That could be a real problem. There's, there's not much difference between the church and the world in the rate of adultery and divorce. If we belong to Christ, it should make a difference in how we treat one another 
here at church and in our homes. There should be a difference in our business practices. And yet often I hear how a person got cheated in business by a professing Christian. Yet in matters where we should blend in, we go out of our way to look different. For some reason we think that if we have this rigid list of, of external do's and don'ts that make us look different than the world, and we live amongst a culture that does that here in Amish country. They're distinct. They look different in matters that really don't matter for eternity. And, and so if the, if the world's women are wearing makeup, Christian women don't want to wear any. If the world's women stop wearing makeup, then the Christian women glob it on. In Bible college, we got a, we, we, we got a lecture once from a, from a veteran pastor on how, as men of the cloth, as the pastors, we should adorn the gospel by always wearing a dark suit when we go out in the public. We should always look ministerial. And I remember thinking, well, maybe they should just soak us in pickle juice for a while too so we look really sour. One time I had a fellow pastor actually tell me at a luncheon, he said, you don't look like a pastor. I said, thank you. I took it as a compliment. <laughs> why, do, why do we have to look weird to be a Christian? We are supposed to be distinct, but, but we don't need to be weird. And so I think we need to, I think we need to rethink some of the things. So the first thing, if we want to fulfill our mission as Christian, is to walk consistently as citizens of heaven. But then we fulfill the Christian mission, secondly, by working cooperatively as contestants on the same team. In the second part of verse 27, he said that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, the Greek word there translated striving together in the word from, is the word from which we get our word athletics. And so the picture here is of an athletic team working in cooperation and coordination towards a common goal. That goal, as we have seen, is the faith of the gospel. That is our goal. So as Americans, as Americans, we're, we're, we're prone towards competition. We're prone. We, we got to do better than that church across town. We got we got to we got to do do bigger than that church across town. And and we focus on individualism, and 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 it's me, and I got to take care of me, and I got to watch out for myself. It affects us more than we sometimes realize. The test for me as a pastor is when I hear that that the attendance is soaring in another church in our area, while attendance at my church might not be going up very fast. I may need to stop and ask, why is my church not growing? Maybe there's some things that, that's wrong. 
But I should rejoice if people are coming to Christ at the other church across town. And if the other pastor is preaching the word of God, because you see, we're all on the same team. We're not in competition with that church that's preaching the same gospel that we're preaching. We're talking about the true gospel that we just went through the doctrines of that gospel. But so often our tendency is to be competitive and to be jealous with the others. I like to, Wycliffe published a, a, a story in 1995 about a Bible translator in Brazil who was trying to paddle his canoe upriver along with a group of natives in their canoes, but he just couldn't keep up with them natives. And so finally, one of the, one of the natives whose legs were, were disabled from a serious injury, but whose arms were strong, came back and told Steve, the missionary, just hang on to my canoe and I will paddle us both back up to the other guy. So you get the picture. This guy's in his canoe. He said, grab a hold of the back of my canoe and I'll paddle something. You just hold on. And so when they caught up, when they caught up with the rest of the group, the others encouraged the missionary to paddle his own canoe. And they all offered him pointers on what he was doing wrong and how he could do it a little better if you just do this or do that. And, and he would try for a while. And when he fell behind, one of them would go back and tow him back up closer. And then just before they got to the, the, the final bend in the river, while they were still out of view of the, of the waiting crowd on the, on, the, on the beach, two men came alongside of Steve and they pushed his canoe to the front of the whole group so that he was the first one to land. And they, they had gone to get thatch for their huts and they shouted as they were coming to shore, we have the thatch. Steve paddled his own canoe. And those words express their philosophy. Together, we have done this. He couldn't have gotten there without them. But they put him in the front. That should be our Christian attitude of working together as teammates in the great cause of Jesus Christ, a united team can win. A team divided against itself with the teammates bickering or fighting over the glories will lose. But a word of caution. There is a strong movement in our day to break down every doctrinal differences between professing Christians and to proclaim our unity in Christ. And we just welcome everybody of every denomination, every belief, and every kind. We're all together, and we're going to be, we're going to be united. There's, there's a strong movement in that today. If this means uniting in gospel efforts with those who truly know Christ and who hold firmly to the essential doctrinal truths of the faith that we just talked about, then that's fine with me. We should not separate from brothers in Christ over minor, minor doctrinal differences. Major ones, yes. 
minor ones that has no, no bearing on whether we get to heaven or not, we don't, argue, we, 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 don't, we don't separate on those issues. But we dare not join forces for evangelism or for fellowship with those who deny the essential Christian doctrines or we simply confuse the truth of the gospel and nobody will really know what we believe. If, if we're not clear on the sound of our trumpet, then how we know when to go to battle? We just sound like everybody else. And through the years, I have been asked, as a pastor, people have asked me, why, why don't you promote the unity service that are held with other churches in our town? Why don't you go to the local ministerial groups? And the reason is that I am not comfortable proclaiming my unity with men and women who pastor churches in our areas, who deny essential biblical truth, nor do I wish to proclaim my unity with the Roman Catholic Church as if, if it were just a different flavor of Christianity or any other group that deny the essential doctrines as they're just, they're just, they're just Christians too, they're going to heaven. Not if they deny the essential doctrines of the faith. And so this is not to say that there, there are not some true Christians in those churches. I'm not saying that. Only God knows that. But it is to say that the churches themselves are denying the essential biblical truth and it is wrong to do anything to imply to the world that we are no different than those other churches that deny the faith. So our co cooperation must be limited to those who stand firm for the faith of the gospel. And thus we fulfill our mission of proclaiming faith of the gospel by walking consistently, by working cooperatively, and then finally we fulfill the Christian mission by warring confidently as combatants in the same army. In verse 28, the last part, and not in any way terrified by your adversary. So we should not, we should not create enemies because we are abrasive or because we are cantankerous people. Or, or that's just who we, that's just my makeup. I can't help it. I'm just, I'm just hard to get along with. I'm just negative about everything. I'm just, I'm just grumpy all the time. And so it, it does, it's just me. It's just me. No, shame on it. That is our attitude. We should be like Christ. Amen. But if by your life and by your words, as you live faithfully for Christ, you oppose sin and you challenge the, the illicit way of the world, especially the sinful way people in this world do things or make money or whatever, you're going to have enemies because you're standing for the truth. And so when we stand firmly upon what God says about marriage and, 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 and what makes up a marriage, and, and that there are men and there are women, and there's nothing in between there, and we stand on truths about, about uh, the sanctity of life, and those things offend people, we don't apologize for what the Word of God says. That's right. 
Now, if I'm if I have a bad attitude, and I and I show anger and stuff like that, then I need to apologize for my my attitude because it should be Christ-like in, in, in everything I do. And so, so we just we need to stand for righteousness. And for some reason, Christians are often surprised when people don't like them. Why don't they like me? New American Standard Bible translate the word terrified as alarmed. But either way, when you look at that, this world, this word was used of a startled horse rearing in fright. So Paul says, don't be alarmed. Not in any way terrified because our side is going to win. Amen. That's what he's saying there. The same God who granted faith to you has also given you another gift, and that is the gift of suffering. We don't like to think about the gift as being suffering, do we? Twice Paul emphasizes that we suffer for Christ's sake. So if Christ, the Son of God, suffered, and if Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, suffered, then we're in good company if we suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And someday, soon, I believe, God will save us and will condemn those who persecute his church. Amen. Stand confidently for the Lord and rest in him. And so when you, you trusted Christ, you didn't join a country club. You might have thought you did, but you didn't. You got drafted into God's army. And your mission is to proclaim the faith of the gospel. You fulfill that mission by walking consistently as a citizen of heaven, by working cooperatively with your fellow teammates in, in church and in other churches that stand for the truth of the gospel, and by warring confidently with your fellow soldiers. Are you facing hardship or criticism? or ridicule because you're a Christian? Remember, it's for the sake of Christ who someday will triumph over all his enemies and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you endure, you will also reign with him, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity tonight to study this very important passage of Scripture. I pray, Father, that you would help us as believers to, to be serious about our contending for the faith and that we, would, that we would not compromise the biblical, the biblical truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would not back down, that we would stand firm and let others know that we are different. But let's do it in love and compassion like Jesus did. Father, help us to be more like him. Speak to our hearts, Father, in areas that, that we maybe need to surrender to you. I pray that we would do that tonight. In areas that you've convicted us of, that we would get those matters right with you. Father, help us to be all that you want us to be in this dark world in which we live. In Jesus' name I pray.